Good afternoon, and welcome to our discussion entitled Financial Privacy in a Digital Era. My name is Jennifer Schulp, and I'm the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Financial privacy is always an important topic, but several newsworthy events have brought it even more front and center in our minds, including recent Biden administration tax reporting proposals and legislation with low reporting thresholds, the Canadian government's limitations on financial services access for those financially supporting the trucker protest, and a host of cryptocurrency usage questions arising from the war in Ukraine. These recent events build on an already changing financial services landscape in which banking and trading are more convenient than ever, but the wide swaths of personal data held by financial institutions and other intermediaries are often easily accessible by the government. The advent of cryptocurrency and its increasing adoption by the mainstream adds another dimension to the question of how Americans can preserve and restore their financial privacy. We're excited to have an excellent panel to talk about these issues today. Marta Belcher is the president and chair of the Filecoin Foundation and the Filecoin Foundation for the Decentralized Web. She's also general counsel and head of policy at Protocol Labs, and she serves as special counsel to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit defending digital privacy, free speech, and innovation. Marta is a pioneer in cryptocurrency law and has spoken around the world, including in Congress and in Davos during the World Economic Forum. Marta has been recognized twice by the Financial Times Innovative Lawyer Awards and is number 18 on Crypto Weekly's list of most influential women in crypto. Paul Balanik is an assistant professor of practice at UC Hastings College of Law. He is the deputy director of the law school's Center for Innovation and the director of the Startup Legal Garage, a program in which law students provide legal work for early stage tech and biotech startups. He was honored for that work as a finalist in the LA Times 2021 in-house counsel leadership awards. Prior to teaching, he practiced civil and criminal law in both small and multinational law firms. And he's recently published an article in the Stanford Technology Law Review entitled, Transparency is the New Privacy, Blockchain's Challenge for the Fourth Amendment. Michael Mosier is general counsel at Espresso Systems, which is developing configurable privacy for digital assets. He served as acting director of Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, also known as FinCEN. Before becoming acting director, he was FinCEN's deputy director and digital innovation officer. His public service also includes roles in the Treasury Department, Department of Justice, and the National Security Council. In the private sector, Michael was in-house counsel at Chainalysis, and he recently testified before the Senate Banking Committee on the topic of understanding the role of digital assets in illicit finance. Now that I've dazzled you with their credentials, it's time to let them speak. We'll be taking questions throughout this discussion, so please submit your questions through the event website or on social media using the hashtag CatoEcon. And before we jump into the discussion, I'd like to give each of our panelists a couple of minutes to provide us with your initial thoughts. Um, let's start with Marta. All right, terrific. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talking about uh, this topic. Um, and so I, I guess for me, I'd like to start by just talking a little bit about um, financial surveillance in particular 
um, and how that has come about um, with regards to the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, the Fourth Amendment really balances the legitimate interests of law enforcement with the civil liberties interests of citizens by requiring the government to get a warrant before conducting searches um, and requiring people to turn over information about financial transactions to the government by default with no warrant or probable cause is, in my view, unconstitutional mass surveillance. Yet somehow we've reached a place where that is the norm. And I think a lot of people don't even question the idea that uh, financial data is turned over to the government en masse in, in a warrantless way. And so how is it that the government is able to do that? Um, and the answer is uh, the third party doctrine. Um, and in, in particular, with regards to financial uh, data, um, the reason is uh, that uh, uh, the under a, a Supreme Court case from the 1970s, US v. Miller, there's this idea that if people have turned over their financial information to a third party, in that case, a bank, then they've lost their reasonable expectation of privacy uh, in that data. And so under the third party doctrine, you have this mass, effectively mass surveillance program. Um, and the uh, amount of data that gets turned over to the government, uh, the amount of financial data that gets turned over to the government under the Bank Secrecy Act uh, and others is is really astounding. Um, I actually think, though, that if there were a challenge to the financial surveillance that's happening today, uh, if it actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court might actually uh, take a different view. Uh, so the reason that I think that is a, a couple of different things. First of all, in the decades since Miller, the Supreme Court has really issued some really strong pro-privacy decisions that have been chipping away at the third party doctrine um, in the digital world. So for example, um, the Supreme Court held in Carpenter that law enforcement has to get a warrant to obtain cell phone location information, even when that information is held by third parties. Uh, another reason is that Miller was an as-applied challenge to the Bank Secrecy Act, meaning that in making its decision, the Supreme Court was really narrowly considering only how the Bank Secrecy Act was implemented at that time, not whether the entire statute is unconstitutional in light of how it could be implemented. And in the decades since Miller, the amount of financial uh, surveillance has just drastically, drastically expanded. And then I think uh, most importantly, the the amount of information that you could glean from bank data in the 1970s is just a world away from the intimate window into a person's life that can be provided by financial data today. You know, digital uh, financial transactions are, are deeply personal and revealing. Um, and like the location records in Carpenter, these financial records can reveal your, your family relationships, your political leanings, uh, your profession, your religious associations. Um, and, and and this is just completely different than the world in the 1970s. And I think that that is something that, that the Supreme Court has recognized. Um, so, you know, just to, to summarize, I really think uh, the Supreme Court now would potentially come to a different decision uh, in this financial, if the financial surveillance of today's system were challenged. Um, so I'll wrap there and I'm looking forward to the rest of our discussion. Okay, thanks. Paul, you wanna go next? Sure. No, that's, that's really easy to follow on. Thank you so much, Marta. Um, uh, what I wrote on was how blockchain might be another catalyst for this change. And, and it's part of that financial services story. And it's also part of the story of mass surveillance. It's basically a way for the government to have a record forever of everything that you've done, especially as cryptocurrencies become more and more mainstream. Um, nowadays, it's kind of a little bit niche, but the day may come where people use some sort of 
cryptocurrency to pay for parking, to pay for a book, to pay for all kinds of things. And those records won't just be bank records. They'll be kind of open possibly or, or ways that people can have their stuff tracked almost infinitely by the government. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit uh, when we get the chance to questions about kind of how we got here, um, not just the, the third party doctrine kind of in abstract, but why the court makes these sorts of decisions and maybe why it's poised to make a shift again, especially after Carpenter. Um, and that has to do with some of the influence of how it's thinking, but also just the way it thinks about the Fourth Amendment. Is the Fourth Amendment about privacy? We're used to thinking about it that way because it's been 50 years, but there are a lot of other values the Fourth Amendment might serve, and those might play very heavily into this question of, are cryptocurrencies just open field, open season uh, for the government to take a look at at any time? But as Marta properly pointed out, it is about balance. Um, we have to be very aware that there's some very bad criminal acts being done with cryptocurrencies and the government needs to have some reasonable way to access these. So finding that balance is always going to be tricky. Uh, and I think that's part of the balancing story of the Fourth Amendment from the beginning. Okay, thanks. Thanks for adding some perspective there. And Michael? Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think very much in line with what Marta and Paul said. Um, I do think coming from probably to some degree a, a government perspective historically, but also from the private sector that's building in these sort of technical solutions and focused on privacy that that it's clearly, I think to the to the framing of the the discussion today, is it time to rethink privacy in the digital era? And I think the answer is obviously yes. Uh, even if you only agree with the people that preceded me, but I think there's a lot more people than that to agree with. And and I would just note that that that's actually very much something that that FinCEN, as the implementer of the BSA, in many ways has agreed with. Um, and I, so I, I, I think it's important as we're talking through this to be thinking through what the implementer of the BSA has has said on this as well, and distinguishing sort of there's there are a lot of politics in this space, uh, elected officials and political appointees. Um, that will often invoke authorities of regulators um, when the regulators aren't necessarily asking for that. Um, and so just a, just a couple quick notes on that. I think, first of all, FinCEN has said it's time to rethink the BSA uh, multiple times. Um, and just as examples, back in, in September of 2020, um, we put out an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking on AML effectiveness that was explicitly asking for public comment to improve the, the way AML was administered and also to rebalance and, and think more of like, how can this be more qualitative and not quantitative um, and balance the cost benefit. And then again, in uh, December of 2021, put out an, a, a request for information on AML modernization, which is explicitly, it's time to modernize the BSA. This is an act of Congress. We can't do it ourselves and we shouldn't do it ourselves because this is public service and we should have public impact, impact uh, input into that process. Um, and specifically saying, how do we reduce the burden? How do we get to quality, not quantity and be more effective and change this and get to clarity? Um, and then I think two other points, and, and these were ones that I was very much involved in at FinCEN when I was there, was in May of 2021, um, we had the development of an innovation program specifically dedicated to privacy enhancing technology, where at the time as acting director, I said, we need more privacy in this space. Um, like, so the implementer is explicitly saying we need more privacy uh, in this space and we need to, to rebalance. Um, and, and what Paul and Marta have talked about over the years, and Jennifer, you've written about this as well, 
we're a long way from the 70s. And certainly there have been a lot of updates and implementations, including through the Patriot Act and, and the AML Act recently. Um, but as, as I think everyone's said, like these are just sort of, you're drifting a little. And I think even FinCEN as the implementer is saying, we really need to rebalance this. Um, and I think that's that's very much what Web3 as an advancement on Web2 is here to potentially provide because you're, you have cryptographic capabilities to provide protections and private computation um, and empower people in a way that Web2 very much put convenience over privacy. And this is an opportunity to sort of get back to that. So I'll stop there because I could keep going, but uh, and, and I'm happy to talk through the politics of the wallets rule under under the Trump administration as well. But I'll, I'll let it go from that. Great, thank you so much. I this is gonna we've already set the stage for a fantastic conversation. Um, although I'm going to take us back a step because we've all used the word privacy, and the title of this event is about privacy. Privacy can mean a number of things in both practice and in theory. And I know it's a bit of a philosophical question, um, but we'll start. Marta, what do you mean when you're talking about privacy and why should we want to protect it? And I'll, I'll tack onto that. What do you say to someone who claims that, that this concern with privacy is really only a concern for people that are looking to hide things from the law? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say a couple of things. Um, I think uh, I'm going to shamelessly uh, I'm going to shamelessly quote uh, Zuka Wilcox, who is the uh, founder of Zcash, uh, who who says that privacy isn't secrecy; that that's a misconception. Privacy is consent. Privacy is giving your consent for your information to be given to to particular people or institutions. Um, and I think that's like a really fantastic uh, way of thinking about privacy in a different way. Um, but I would say, you know, even to the extent that privacy is about secrecy or anonymity, I think there's this idea, this misconception that anonymity is bad and that tools that enhance privacy enable crime. Uh, and privacy and anonymity are not bad and they're not illegal. In fact, they're essential for civil liberties. And that's especially true for financial transactions. Um, you know, I always think about uh, these pictures that I saw from the Hong Kong protests, which showed these really long lines at subway stations as pro-democracy protesters were waiting to purchase their tickets with cash so that their electronic purchases wouldn't place them at the scene of the protest. And so for me, that really underscores that the importance of anonymous transactions for civil liberties. Um, and for me, one of the reasons I've been so interested in, in the cryptocurrency space, um, and one of the things that I've really been fighting for in the cryptocurrency space is that cryptocurrency is important for civil liberties precisely because it can import the anonymity of cash into the online world. And that's a feature, not a bug. Thanks. Michael, do you have a, anything to add or, or a different conception? I, I don't have a different conception. I think, well, first of all, I'm always a fan of Zuko, um, but but I think the way Marta laid it out um, added a lot of dimensions to it. And I would just say, I think this is something that that it it is multidimensional. I mean, and you've mentioned, brought up different aspects of it as did Marta, um, you know, it's, it's security, it's personal security. Um, this is part of the reason that actually at FinCEN that that we spent so much time and on that and and that I asked people to come in and talk to us more about getting more privacy because 
there's there's this sort of and maybe this is sort of in as the drift of the of the information collection is just sort of piled on and and through policymakers but there's a there's a we can't lose sight that the mission of fincen itself and of public service is a prevention of exploitation um and and not confusing mission with tools and, and the tool the mission is not collection it's it's prevention um and privacy is a critical part of that um it's a critical part even of national security that that Americans are protected from being surveilled by foreign nation states, um, but also from their own government, which was part of the separation of powers and the constitution. And I think it's not just, it's so multidimensional in the sense that there's a security element, but there's also just human behavior and thriving and self-determination, which I think is also important in that people just act differently when they're being watched. Um, and I think that's important if we want to have this sort of foundation of creativity and thriving and self-determination, people need to be able to occasionally close the door. Um, even if it's if it's just in the bathroom or it's in the studio to write music or do whatever they're doing. Um, so I, I think it's it's a whole multidimensional aspect of sort of uh, advancing society, but it's also having space um, to be yourself. I think that's a great way to think about it. Paul, do you have anything to add on that front? And I will throw another question to you in addition yeah. to adding to that. We've talked about the Fourth Amendment. Um, say Everyone has brought it up in, in their opening statements already. And you've looked a lot at kind of the history of how we've gotten to where we are today. And if you could provide some perspective on that, it would be fantastic as well. Absolutely. This locks in perfectly because as Marta and Michael both just said, the concept of privacy is multidimensional. Maybe take a step back. The Fourth Amendment is multidimensional. Okay, so it contains within itself the concept of privacy, the concept of autonomy, the concept of dignity, the right to be let alone. That's a famous quote from Justice Brandeis. The right to read and consume unorthodox things. That's kind of a First Amendment ideal that gets put in there as well. Like you can keep your papers hidden from others and the government so you can read them. Um, the sanctity of of private property. The government can't wander onto your property looking for stuff. And, and maybe most of all, the fear of kind of arbitrary and limitless government power. All of this is imbued in the Fourth Amendment. But the, um, the history of the Fourth Amendment is the story of the court deciding at various points that one of those values is more important than others. And when it does that, the jurisprudential outcome is vastly different. It shifts all over the place. Like a slight adjustment here, vast shift over there. So in the 17 and 1800s, the focus is on government tyranny. Um, the Fourth Amendment has its origins in the king basically saying, you have these things called writs of assistance or general warrants that allow people to go anywhere they want, anytime they want, with no suspicion whatsoever. And the colonists are furious and they write a Fourth Amendment based on that. But even into the 1800s, you get cases where the court says, even looking at a person's private papers is tyranny. And could you imagine like that much uh, protection under the Fourth Amendment? Well, things shift with prohibition, with uh, the the, third, uh, the 16th Amendment um, allowing income tax. Now the government has to have more leeway to get into our private things. And the, the Supreme Court in the 1920s says, no, no, the, actually what the Fourth Amendment protects is private property. So if the government doesn't actually walk onto your property, no Fourth Amendment problem. And therefore, in cases like that, you could have the government tapping wires or setting up microphones out on a public sidewalk or in the room next door because they haven't technically walked on your property. Well, in the 1960s, we get a shift again towards privacy, right? The cat's test, the reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, now things like telephone conversations are protected by the Fourth Amendment. We have a massive shift 
just by changing the focus on the value from property to privacy. But as Marta pointed out in the 1970s, a shift comes again. Now we define privacy to mean secrecy. And therefore, what is private is secret. And if it's not secret, well, you share it with your bank, well, the government can look at it too. And that's where we are now. Uh, but as Marta pointed out, we may be on the cusp of a shift again. And I think the shift in Carpenter, actually the most interesting part of that case to me is where the court says, yes, yes, we're still talking about privacy, but really what we're worried about is the return of the general warrant. We're worried about arbitrary government power to search cell phone records in that case from now packed five years at will. And so I think once again, we're watching this shift of the focus of the Fourth Amendment's valences from privacy maybe back towards government power. And when we do that, the idea of privacy as secrecy sort of fades into the background and the main focus comes back and a different jurisprudence might be coming up. And, and there's a question um, in the chat I'd like to address on that, which is, I don't think the Supreme Court is gonna strengthen the third party doctrine at all. I think Justice Gorsuch and Carpenter wrote a dissent, which really wasn't a dissent. It was a concurrence that said, this reasonable expectation of privacy sense make, test makes no sense in the modern world. The, the third party doctrine makes no sense in the modern world. Let's just get rid of it and start over. And he actually said, I think the third party test is on life support. Um, those are his exact words. And the majority said, no, no, we're not getting rid of it yet. But, but I think the court is really thinking about it. I don't see them strengthening it. I think they're, they're focusing their values away from the concept of a hidebound, narrow privacy definition. Privacy is secrecy, as Marta and Michael Bull said, into let's have autonomous citizens not threatened by their government. And when you make that shift in focus, jurisprudence will follow. Thanks. It's been an interesting history as to how we think about how the Fourth Amendment has shifted. Um, people have a tendency to think that the amendments were set in stone. Um, and anyone that's followed the court knows that things are generally not set in stone, uh, no matter how much we would or would not like them to be. Um, and it's exciting to see that there's, there's shifting again happening in that space. Everyone has brought up this aspect, uh, basically how the world has changed a lot since the 1970s. Um, we obviously share a lot more information today with third parties just to run our lives than we did even 10 years ago, let alone 50. Uh, people don't use cash in the quantities that they used to use. And if you look at a combination of my bank statements, my credit card statements, and my Venmo history, you pretty much know exactly how I run my life day to day. Everything is electronic and there's a record of it all. Before we jump to talking in more detail about crypto and what I, I think of as our digital future, I want to talk about what our current digital age really means for the privacy of people who are just using plain old dollars to transact. Um, Michael, you've talked a bunch already about FinCEN and trying to need to balance the need between law enforcement and people's privacy rights. Uh, for those in the audience that are not as familiar with the Bank Secrecy Act, I'll give you know two sentences um, of, a, of an introduction. Um, because one of the laws at the center of the federal government's efforts to collect financial data to thwart criminal activity is the Bank Secrecy Act, which was passed in 1970. Initially, the Bank Secrecy Act required financial institutions to keep certain financial records and to report certain cash transactions to the government. And over the years, that has expanded exponentially, including through what are known as sus suspicious activity reports. 
um, which financial institutions now have a responsibility to monitor their accounts and to tell the government when they see something that makes them suspicious of money laundering or other illicit activity. That's obviously a very large surveillance system. Um, I'll say Michael can speak in more detail to just how large that is. But there's, there's a lot of fodder for questions here. So I'm just gonna give you one that's kind of broad and you can make it your own. But how do you balance the law enforcement needs here with individuals' privacy rights? Yeah, I think that's the perennial question. And I think if anything, that's what FinCEN itself as the implementer has been raising repeatedly in, in these, these RFIs, the notice, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking saying, we really think there's, we recognize there's a lot of burden, there's a lot of collection. We've actually, um, I think FinCEN to some degree was saying, we've, we've been telling financial institutions you should be prioritizing more. There was even, there's even it was put in the AML Act, uh, a movement to say, let's, let's come up with priority threats that people should focus on and not just collect everything and dump it, do a data dump to the, the federal government. Um, so, I mean, you have the, the federal government itself is saying, please stop data dumping on us. <laughs> like we, we do not even have the technical resources to, to analyze all of this because um, much of Congress uh, has been focused on sort of either adding authorities or adding reports um, that we need to do. And, and, and actually now we're a year and a half past the AML Act and Congress hasn't de de delivered any of the resources that were promised under the AML Act. So I think that you're hearing from FinCEN, we don't want the data dumps. We want to rebalance, um, get more precise in what it is. And also I think there's, it, there's been a bit of a sort of lowest common denominator in implementation at financial institutions as well, because some, at, there are points where it's just easier to collect everything um, and send it in. And, and, and that's partly, I think, partly on the financial institutions and, and their lawyers who uh, should be a little more precise in what, in what compliance means. Uh, and we've said this to them. And so is Ken Blanco, the last director. Um, but I think it's also... Um, getting the examiners to sort of, you know, have in their minds what the rest of the law enforcement is, is like, this is the actual priorities. We don't want you dinging people for the smallest thing. We actually want to focus on priorities. And so I think, I think where things are headed, ideally, or, or in, as mapped out in the ML Act is to say, we need to be prioritizing Let's set thresholds. Um, there's an enormous, as you've said, Jennifer, enormous amount of, of data now available that's not what it was. Um, and, and that should empower people to actually do more activity-based rather than identity-based um, risk assessment. Um, and I think also just being more prioritized about what, do, what are you sending in instead of, like nobody wants the data dump to happen. <laughs> so like, let's move on past that and have these conversations, whether it's through the RFI, the proposed rulemakings and just round tables. There's been a reg reform round table on this for years that went into a lot of what was proposed in the AML Act, which was, hey, we actually want people to just prioritize um, what are the highest risk threats, like kidnapping, you know, like there are, there are needs. It's, we're not going to get away with just saying we should just have none. Everything should be anonymous. Um, people will say that until their child is taken or, or, or something like that. And so that's not going to be the answer, but there's got to be a better balance. And I think part of it is 
let's set priorities. And that might have to be a bit dynamic. Um, so it's not just setting a collection rule and, and going away, unfortunately, because the world changes and we're very much in a post 9-11, post post 9-11 world where it's it's not just sort of terrorists, you know, coming in in planes. It's it, it's domestic extremism. There's other things. Um, but it's also not the case that like ISIS has turned to Bitcoin and now we need to collect everything. Uh, that's just not where we are. So I think sort of adjusting that set of priorities, which was the the sort of the vision of the AML Act was that we need to collectively get together, set priorities, and then then accordingly sort of scope things. I think to follow up on that, we had a question from an anonymous user on the event page asking law enforcement and other government agencies can request details without presenting warrants and information is furnished without the knowledge of the individual should this open door be closed and i'll throw that out to whoever wants to to tackle that one yeah i i will i will say that i think um so one of my favorite um eff stickers uh, says, come back with a warrant. Um, and, I, you know, I think that, you know, just further to your previous question about um, about how we balance the needs of law enforcement with the civil liberties of citizens, I think the answer to that is that the government should have to get a warrant before conducting searches, right? That's sort of fundamentally the answer um, based on, on probable cause. Um, and I believe that, you know, I, I think to even go a step further, requiring people or institutions to turn over information about transactions to the government by default with no warrant and no probable cause is, in my view, unconstitutional mass surveillance. So if I could jump off of that, knowing a little bit about the details of the Carpenter case might flesh that question out. Um, Carpenter was charged with a series of robberies uh, in the Midwest and without a warrant, because they didn't need one at the time, the police simply went to his cell phone carrier, um, one of his... Uh, co-conspirators snitched on him and said, you know, he was there and, and they found out what cell phone carrier he used and the police went to the cell phone carrier and said, give us his cell phone records of where his cell phone was because your cell phone, as you walk through the world, pings off of towers. And every time it pings off of a tower, there's a little record created. So you can actually map where someone has been based off these records. Well, under the third party doctrine, you know, in a way, Carpenter had shared the information with the cell phone towers. Uh, with the cell phone companies. Therefore, it's not private under the very narrow definition of privacy the Supreme Court gave us. If you share it, not private, therefore no Fourth Amendment protection. So there's this trove of data the government could access without a warrant. And the Supreme Court ultimately said, no, you, you need a warrant for that because that's mass surveillance. And I think the analogy to the case we're just discussing is very clear. The day may come when the Supreme Court squarely looks at the Bank Secrecy Act or any of these practices and says, mm, now this has gotten to the point where this is mass surveillance and just like in Carpenter, um, we can't have the government accessing without a warrant. Now in Carpenter, they were very clear. We're not touching Smith. We're not touching Miller, the third party cases. Those still stand. And that's why Justice Gorsuch said, what are we doing here? I mean, if they either, they either stand or they don't, why are we doing this sort of half in half out life support thing? Uh, and I think the Supreme Court at some point is gonna clarify that for us. And I'm going to put you on the spot, Michael, because you obviously come at this from a different perspective, having been at FinCEN. And I'm curious to know generally what your thoughts are, if you can give them on that on that question. 
Well, which which aspect in particular? Because Paul and Armar have both spoken to a bunch of it. So, what's what's most helpful to speak to? Um, I think the the direct question that I would put to you is: Is this surveillance okay without a warrant? Well, I think there there's clearly lines on that, and I think the fact that even as FinCEN itself has said, "Stop data dumping to us, please," um, is a good indicator. <laughs> that they're getting more than they even can more than is even useful from a practical perspective but uh it's just a lot of noise but it's also it's also vulnerabilities i mean i think they, like there clearly should be less collection um and, and there needs to be just better protection all around you know better data protection we've we've been we brought in a digital identity advisor specifically to say we need better protection of identities um, in fact, they just did a, a tech sprint and with like 200 applicants and, and 60 participants specifically on getting better protection of identity. Um, the, the idea that banks, everyone's collecting social security numbers for everything and uh, and they're just floating around, that's all creating victims with identity theft, synthetic identity. I mean, I think even, even identity itself in the banking sector is so easily spoofed at this point. Um, that you're you're largely creating vulnerabilities, probably even more than you're helping to some degree, um, and I think that's that's sort of the point is that we need to get beyond that and and collect a lot less. And part of that is is if you if you again go back to sort of the mission, like the point is to prevent victims, not just to avenge victims. Um, and so, like we want less data floating around about people out there. I think some of that's a policy decision. And, and a lot of that is actually also technical solutions that are now available with cryptography. And, and frankly, that's partly why I left the government to go join Espresso Systems, which is like, I think it's going to be technical solutions to the policy issues in part by creating more options around like when you can do self-disclosure, zero knowledge proofs, like let's, let's create fewer victims to begin with. Um, and also not not sort of have policymakers that aren't the implementers also pushing forward and pushing forward for maybe more collections the answer in in the way that a lot of times to congress and the nsc so sanctions are sort of the answer to everything um let's not have data collection be the answer to everything and ofac will say the same thing like yes sanctions are not the answer to everything please stop um in our name and i think it's the same from a government perspective like we saw out of the PPP and the economic impact payments, the number of victims of identity theft, which all these law enforcement folks are tasked with, you know, getting, trying to get money back and you're, you're not going to get it back. Um, so I think the point is let's prevent victims rather than, rather than try to chase after the people that created them. Great. And there's a question from a, another audience member that I think follows on that very nicely. An anonymous person on the event page asks, um, VPN services that protect privacy when we surf the internet have grown in popularity. Do you foresee a similar capability for making digital financial transactions in a private fashion becoming the norm? I, I'll, I'll jump on that just because I think the answer is, is yes, and that's literally what we're building at Espresso Systems. So it might have been, it's a bit of a setup, and I'm not here to market. Um, but I, but I do think you know we're building configurable privacy for transactions um, and using zero knowledge proofs and and selective disclosure. Because yes, I think the answer is very much yes. Like and VPNs, you know, there's a there's an enormous amount. If you talk to security professionals, VPNs 
um, it's, it's a security. It's not people trying to just be anonymous. Like if you're in a hotel or an airport or wherever, there are, there are tons of reasons why you would want to use VPNs to the extent that you can trust them, which is another issue these days. But, um, but there are lots of security reasons that, 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 that that's important. And I think the same with financially, I mean, the exposure that you have in, in totally public ledgers is, is is sort of stunning and, it, and it, it's working for many reasons good reasons but there's clearly room for improvement um, which zcash has done and i think when we're working on a way to make it even more configurable um, by people i think if i could add to that it, it's always worth pointing out that as a law professor you know it's the old hammer and everything is a nail kind of concept we have to keep reminding ourselves that the fourth amendment's a very blunt instrument and the warrant process is not going to solve all of our problems. It, it takes the private sector, it takes Congress, it takes agencies like FinCEN, it takes technology and development to get at these from very different angles because a court is a very slow moving sort of thing. It's not going to be able to keep up with the cutting edge and it's going to be very reactive and sometimes it's going to issue opinions people don't like. And as we've already known, the Fourth Amendment is a very malleable sort of thing. It could be subject to political opinion or all of this is to say is that is that the Fourth Amendment alone is not the solution to the problem. It takes everybody involved and it takes that kind of private sector um, innovation as well, especially. I would add to that, you know, I think we have the capability to make anonymous transactions using things like um, Zcash or Monero. And I think from a technological perspective, you know, that's one of the things that's so important about um, cryptocurrencies, um, or at least certain cryptocurrencies that enable privacy um, and anonymity. But on the other hand, what you actually have um, is the government really pushing for, uh, for, for, you know, across the world, not just in the United States, um, but pushing for those types of transactions to just not be allowed. So just to give you an example, um, there was the Department of Justice released this cryptocurrency enforcement framework, and they uh, they, they created this sort of uh, three-letter acronym, uh, AECs or Anonymity Enhanced um, Cryptocurrencies. And um, they wrote that the use of privacy coins or these AECs um, is uh, indicative of possible criminal conduct. And they said that things like mixers and tumblers, um, people people who um, uh, create uh, things like mixers and tumblers that enable uh, anonymous transactions can be criminally liable for money laundering um, because these technologies are designed to conceal or disguise information about financial transactions. Um, and you have all these various proposals around the world um, from the FinCEN proposal a few years ago to the recent um, European um, uh, AML KYC proposal involving cryptocurrency that are all really pushing to take take the mass surveillance of the traditional banking system and push it onto cryptocurrency and to, to make um, those types of anonymous transactions that are technologically possible to, to make them either impractical or or frankly, illegal. Um, there's also, I think, a, a lot going on under the surface. Um, for example, a lot of exchanges have um, not been able to talk about why, but have delisted um, privacy coins. Um, and so, I think there's a, a really big, uh, a really big push across the world to to make those technologies not actually usable, even though they exist. I, I think that's exactly where the Fourth Amendment can step in. I think that may be its role is to to sort through those kind of actions and say, gee, maybe this is a bit of overreach. I think you're right. 
Yeah. And I think if I can just add something on that, I think there's another important point on that, which Paul brought up too with the process. I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to also have to rely on litigation for privacy. Uh, courts are exceptionally slow and, uh, and expensive uh, and, and very expensive. Um, um, so I think that is where, you know, we, that is where you need the rulemaking process. Um, and, and you also need, we need a lot of engagement, like technical engagement too, from industry with these governments around the world. Uh, Marta brought up the, the wallets rule from Secretary Mnuchin at the end of the Trump administration. And I think if, if anything, the, the, one, it was as as the deputy director at the time, I, I fought heartily, including a little more vocally than I probably should have at times with the secretary about that, because um, I, I, I do think it was it was too fast and it was overreach. But I think also that's why you need the Administrative Procedures Act um, that, that can say, hey, 15 or 14 days is not enough. Um, this has got to be 60 days or whatever. I think there's there's been recent talk about that with the SEC. And I do think Marta's brought up the, the Supreme Court quite a bit, but I think there's another less sexy than the Fourth Amendment um, APA world <laughs> of jurisprudence uh, that also involves the, the Supreme Court that I think everyone's aware that, that there's going to be a little less deference to that uh, and, and probably in a healthy way. And I say that particularly in the context of Secretary Mnuchin's wallets rule, where it was clearly a rush towards the inauguration um, and, and you needed people to, to be able to weigh in. And even folks at FinCEN who were opposed to it, um, you need the rest of the public to weigh in, it, like it, in the good way, um, but you also need those technical arguments. Um, and so I do think it's going to be important to have that in a, in a situation where you can have political appointees coming in that are that are going to have a, a brief agenda um, that even if career folks are, are opposed to that, that they're, they're going to need they're going to need that backing. And, and likewise, you see it in the EU right now, where I think to some degree, it's probably a, a they need a lot of more education on the technology to not be so spooked by it. Um, it's a little surprising is the 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 place that brought us GDPR is saying there's too much privacy. Um, so I'm hopeful that that's just sort of an educational um, uh, process, but but I do think it's an important time to engage on that, um, in, in part because then I'll, I'll get off the soapbox, but I think in partly because what you don't want, like there's a positive development with the UK saying, hey, we're, Brexit has been rough for us, so let's differentiate from the EU and be the home of crypto. And I think that's a positive um, sort of free market uh, race that, that started, but you don't want other jurisdictions pulling that back and saying, and then you have jurisdictions looking at others and saying, well, wait, they all thought this was a real problem. Maybe it's a real problem sort of thing. I'm happy to have you on the soapbox for as long as you'd like to be on the soapbox, Michael. Um, I think a conversation has taken an interesting turn because what we've done is we've jumped to talking about things like privacy coins without talking about crypto in the way that, you know, crypto novices tend to understand it. Um, and to me, that seems to suggest that that crypto itself is not and blockchain itself is not the panacea for privacy that some might have said it would be in 2009, 2010, and that might underlie some of the, the theories for why crypto is going to be so great, um, that we have to have additional innovation in order to have private crypto transactions. Uh, Paul, I know you wrote 
on this with respect to some of the problems with the way we conceive privacy now and how that interacts with the blockchain. Um, but I'd really love to get everyone's perspective on really, is crypto good for privacy? Or is it simply there's additional innovation that can be great for privacy that's based on crypto? <laughs> So I'm happy to I'm happy to start uh, just to jump in on on some high level stuff. And you're right, we did definitely jump ahead uh, in the conversation. Um, I think a really important thing to understand about cryptocurrency and just to address one of the major misconceptions is that that Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies are not actually anonymous; they're pseudonymous. Right. So what you have is you have a ledger and just to use Bitcoin as the example, the Bitcoin blockchain ledger publicly and permanently records all Bitcoin transactions. So for each Bitcoin transfer, the information that's publicly displayed is the Bitcoin address of the sender and the receiver. So these are alphanumeric strings that are sort of, a, you can think of them like a username, um, which a user could use once or can use for multiple transactions. And, um, you know, while the information recorded on the, the blockchain may be the address, you know, one, two, three transferred one Bitcoin to address four, five, six, and such and such a time. If someone finds out um, that you are, your identity is tied to user one, two, three, then they will in fact know uh, that, that, you know, they'll, they'll actually be able to see all of your transactions, right? Um, and so for that reason, um, Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies like it are not actually anonymous. And I think that's, and I, you know, I think as, as Paul had, and, and Michael, I think have both talked about, um, it, that leads to some, some interesting um, things because really there's a, there actually is a permanent record of all transactions on, on the Bitcoin blockchain that is publicly accessible to anyone. I think that, 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 that if you think that the private, let me put, put it another way, Bitcoin's not, or blockchain, or any of these coins are not just about privacy. Once you understand that privacy is not the only value in town, then you begin to understand that there are things that you give up a little bit of privacy. Just like Marta said, you give up the right to totally secret transactions in exchange for some really good things like incredible security in your transactions unhackable transactions, things that cannot be undone or stolen. You, you, um, you get uh, uh, fraud-free transactions without worrying about a central intermediary like a bank being hacked or something like that. And those kinds of uh, benefits um, speak to other values like autonomy or the right to interact with people who you want to interact with without worrying about interference or the right to consume materials or things that you might want to have passed over a blockchain to you, admittedly often like in hashed or or scrambled form, but other values are in play. And so when you ask the question, Jennifer, is blockchain good for privacy? The answer is sort of, but it's also good for a lot of other things that indeed the Fourth Amendment might protect or that we think are good human values generally. So I, I would just take a step back and broadly say privacy, yes, privacy, no, but there's more, there's more to the game than just privacy. So, so circling kind of around to the same type of question, we, I think when crypto was born, so when we're talking, you know, a decade plus ago now, 
these were transactions that were able to take place kind of outside the government's eye, peer-to-peer, um, little to no government involvement at all. But what we've seen over the past several years, not surprisingly, is the interest in the U.S. and other governments getting involved in the regulation in this space. That is a whole big question on its own. But what I'd like to talk specifically about is adding crypto platforms to the BSA and anti-money laundering requirements, adding digital assets to these other surveillance systems that are in place, the tax reporting surveillance system. Uh, say, Marta, you've recently written on um, adding the adding digital assets to a portion of the tax code that requires businesses to report more than $10,000 in a cash transaction to the government. And I'd just like to talk a little bit about if that raises any different issues or just heightens the same issues that we have with kind of the broad-based surveillance that is potentially problematic here. And actually, I'd like to start with Marta because I know I know you've written in this space and would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I think the first thing I would say is, is big picture. I think another misconception in this space is that um, cryptocurrency is unregulated and that it's the Wild West. So the on-ramps and the off-ramps where people are buying and selling and custodying crypto are heavily regulated. So these on-ramps and off-ramps are chartered banks or their trust companies or their state licensed money transmitters. And they have all sorts of requirements. They post bonds, they open their doors for yearly inspections. Um, they're registering with FinCEN. They're complying with the Bank Secrecy Act. They're doing KYC. They're sharing details of suspicious transactions. So, so all of that um, is, is really happening at the choke points at the on-ramps and the off-ramps at these at these exchanges. Um, so I think that's sort of um, point number one. I think point number two is um, one of the things that we've seen a lot of recently, and you know, including um, as as you mentioned, um, you know, what I've written about um, is you've seen uh, an expansion to not only having surveillance happen at these choke points at the on-ramps and off-ramps, but also expanding even further beyond that to, to do surveillance in a way that is even broader that actually requires participants in the network to collect identity details of the people that they're transacting with and then somehow securely handle that information and then turn that information over to the government. Um, and in some cases, with some of these proposals, um, potentially, if they don't do that, uh, face criminal penalties. Um, and so, I think um, this is a this is a the you know what, whatever you think of the existing uh, financial regulation and surveillance, um, which again I already think is is unconstitutional. The the proposals that we've seen recently have expanded that even further, and I think are cre are are creating systems that um, require participants to collect information in a way that's just not workable, and in a way that is a further intrusion on on uh, on privacy and and uh, further expand surveillance. Yeah, could I just add something on that actually? Because I I think I think it it also 
it dovetails with some some other conversations we've had about sort of policymakers taking a move in, and invoking um, various concerns of implementers that the implementers aren't raising. Um, and I think 6050Is is, was one that was particularly problematic from my perspective because it was ostensibly a tax provision, not an AML provision, but in discussions, this sort of specter of illicit activity and AML would get raised. Um, but it, but that wasn't the context that it was that it was brought up as an amendment um, or a discussion or, or a discussion that included the implementers. By the way, said, do you want this like incredibly dirty data that's going to be collected from people who are not a financial institution who do this every day and know how to structure data and vet data, um, but you're actually just creating uh, an enormous number of people that are going to collect sensitive data theoretically. And potentially create a lot, a lot of victims. I mean, if you think about just the synthetic identities and identity theft that happens because every time, well, in the old days when people went to the mall and, and got a credit card uh, somewhere, you gave to the person who happened to be working at the desk that day, your social security number and all your personal information to write it down. And this is just floating around in pieces of paper all over the place. Um, that's sort of a, an identity theft treasure trove. And, and I don't think I, I certainly, as the former acting director of FinCEN, thought 6050i was a bit of a disaster in that sense of you're just asking people, you're deputizing people who are not even professionally set up to be collecting this kind of information, to collect information at all sorts of ambiguous threats that Marta laid out. Um, and, and it was this, and it's similar to Secretary Mnuchin's wallets rule, where you're, you're just asking for more people to collect things that this is not the type of thing that they do. Um, and, and it's, and you're creating victims. You're, you're not really solving problems. You're just, you're adding a data dump to it. We've got a question in the chat that raises an issue that we haven't talked at all today about, and I'm curious to know if anyone has any thoughts. Um, Mike from Twitter asks, how worried should we be about privacy issues surrounding a potential central bank digital currency in the United States? Um, if that's not in anyone's wheelhouse, that's okay. But it's a very important privacy question that I think if you have thoughts on, we'd love to hear them. Well, I think they're terrifying. <laughs> just, to, just, to, just to kick it off, I think um, I think central bank digital currencies um, are absolutely terrifying. Um, I think it they you know really put the government at the center of every transaction. They give the government the ability to have absolute visibility into financial transactions, um, and they give the a government ability to even revoke your money. Right. Um, and so I just, you know, T TLDR, um, I think they are, um, I think uh, I'm, I'm very worried about CBDCs um, from a financial privacy perspective. I think that if there were anything that would shift Fourth Amendment doctrine yet again, and this time definitely in the, oh my God, we're terrified of the government direction, it would be that. Yeah, I, I think I would just add, like, I, I think it's, it's, I'm very anxious about it probably less in the sense of like the intentional, we're going to go the China route, which would obviously be horrific and frightening and dystopian, uh, that sort of level of collection. But I, I'm more worried that um, the politics of it, um, even if you have people at the Federal Reserve who are, who are saying, we, you know, this is only going to work if it's, if it's the opposite of the 
digital yuan, um, that just the politics of it as things churn through Congress, um, that it becomes something that it shouldn't be. And that that's probably exceptionally easy to happen. And, and, and we saw that even, even with 6050i, the way things can get jammed up. So I, my, my hope is if it proceeds at all, that it's just purely back end um, settlement and nothing forward facing. Um, but, but really, my hope is also really that private stable coins are so far ahead of it um, and, and working that, that there just won't be, I think there are probably other things to fix like mass transit, um, high speed internet, like other things to focus on. Certainly plenty of things to focus on, um, and tend to agree on the CBDC front. Um, we are getting close to time. So I want to ask kind of a, just a wrap up question, short answers. We've touched on a lot of things today and we've touched on a few things that, you know, suggestions for where we'd like to look in the future. But so where do we go from here? Um, how can Americans better protect, preserve and restore their financial privacy um, when they need to share information to live in the digital age? What, what's, what's, what would you say? Where's the answer? Um, and I'll, I'll start with Michael and go from there. I'll put you on the spot. No, no, thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for the whole conversation today. I think I think to that, it's people should be looking to one is technical solutions um, so that you're not relying on courts. Um, you know, look to the what's being developed in zero knowledge technology that that can help people manage risk that isn't going to be just disclosing things. And then I think the other is is really engaging, like including particularly with your your representatives in Congress. Um, like there's a, there's no doubt that bills are going to go through about cryptocurrency and privacy in the coming year, and they really, really, really need to hear from you uh, it, it, that this is important to everyday people. Okay, Paul. Um, the thing I took away, this has been a great conversation. The best takeaway I took from this is just watching all of the pieces at play, you know, private sector, Congress, agencies, courts, all have a role to play in this. And, um, you know, as a law professor, I've got the, the courts angle. I'll be very curious to see if in the same way that telephones and then cell phones caused shifts in the Supreme Court jurisprudence, it'll be interesting to see if these kind of financial records are the thing that finally tipped them away from the third party doctrine. We'll find out, um, but all the indicators are there. Um, we'll just see if it ends up happening. So, uh, you know, I hope everyone just keeps working together on these issues. It's very, very important. And I'll give you the last word, Marta. Thanks. You know, I would say, I think that um, one of the big things is just trying to effectuate a shift in the way that people think about financial privacy. One of the things that I find so frustrating working on policy in this space is that there seems to be this acceptance that financial surveillance that we see in the traditional banking system is totally normal. And that it's necessary that banks turn over financial records to the government by default en masse without a warrant. And that it's that, that is okay, right? And that is normal. And I think it's really um, uh, being able to, to see, to shift our thinking and question that and think about, is that actually something that we should see as normal and acceptable, or is that something that that's actually ought to be unconstitutional? 
Thank you so much to all three of you for joining us today. And thank you also to our audience. I'm sorry, we didn't have time to get to all of the audience questions, um, but thank you for submitting and thank you for participating. The video recording of this event will be available on Cato's website and we look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you and have a great afternoon.